13 this morning. Beginning in verse 1, John chapter 13, we open the Word of God to a very important passage, and it sets the stage for some of what we believe God is leading us to in 2024. So let's just read God's holy Word right off the bat. John chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. The Bible says, Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus Knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come back forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments. And taking a towel, he girded himself. Verse 5. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Now here, Jesus teaches us that a Christian lives to bless and to serve to bless and to serve, but there are barriers that we all face. One barrier is pessimism. There's so much bad news today that it's easy to think, you know, what we do here doesn't matter. Now, we all need to stay informed. We don't want to put our head in the sand. But when you open the manhole cover and you discover the sewer stinks, close the manhole cover. Don't get too immersed in it. Pray, hope, even vote, but don't become so immersed in the news cycle that you become pessimistic about what God can do. Pessimism causes a church to make maintenance decisions instead of mission decisions. Pessimism causes a church to make maintenance decisions instead of mission decisions. We want to make mission decisions, trusting in the truth of God's word and the power of the Holy Spirit to enable us to continue to disciple and baptize people in the name of King Jesus. So we want to avoid that barrier of pessimism. Another barrier is isolationism. Since the Judeo-Christian ethic is gone, we might think that we can ride out the culture storm in a church like this and then wait until we return to normal. We aren't going back to normal, folks. And isolationism can lead to an us-versus-them worldview. And we see the world not as a victim bound by the devil, but an enemy to be avoided. And we can even equate that kind of a lifestyle with holiness. Thank God that many of you avoid isolationism and you come together often to bless this community and do things in the name of Jesus. But a third area, third area excuse me, that can sneak in is defeatism. Some of you here have been wounded by life. Some of you have sinned and you think that you can't recover from that. And regardless of what happened, you have decided that God cannot do much through you in most situations. Scripture says God can work through you despite your past. Abraham was old. I'm there. <laughs> Jacob was good at lying. Leah felt bad because she was unattractive. 
Joseph was abused. Moses stuttered. Rahab was a harlot, which is a problem. Jeremiah was called the weeping prophet. Jonah had a bad attitude. John the Baptist was odd by anybody's standards. Martha worried all the time. Zacchaeus was hated. Paul had bad health. And we could keep going. But a Christian lives to bless and to serve. And God can do through you what you cannot do. So don't limit him by unbelief. And as we seek to bless and to serve this year and in 2024, there are three questions we need to ask about the way we bless and serve. They apply to us individually. They apply to us as a church. Number one, is the Lord well pleased? Look at verse four. Is the Lord well pleased? In verse four, you have to wonder what Jesus is thinking. Judas is acting like a friend. The cross is imminent, and his disciples still don't understand much of anything. However he felt, verse 4 says he laid aside his garments. He took his clothes off. And taking a towel, he girded himself, and verse 5 said he washed their feet. That was work reserved for the lowliest slave, the guy at the bottom of the pile. Feet in that day were caked with dirt, so the towel around his waist as he went through his disciples would have progressively become caked with mud and would have become wet. Jesus Christ, our Lord, knelt down before mere men. He knelt down before the, his disciples and he did this to them as an act of love and service. And it is an example of how we are to bless and to serve. And Jesus does not want us to limit ourselves by the three criteria that often dictate what we do. We all do this. And we ask ourselves in the back of our mind, if I bless and serve, will I be satisfied? Will I be comfortable? And will it be convenient? Will I be satisfied? Will it be comfortable? And will it be convenient? This morning, Jesus invites you to discard those questions. In verse 15, look at that. He said, I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. No mention of satisfaction, comfort, or convenience. You will never know how much God can use you until you exchange your preference for being willing to bless and serve. Look at verse 17. Jesus said, if you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. So this morning, are you willing to bless and to serve, to do what Jesus puts right in front of you, even if it's menial, if it costs you leisure time, if it has a financial cost, if it costs you in social capital? Now let's turn to the positive. If you bless and serve faithfully, you cannot comprehend the blessings that you're going to experience. We don't serve for selfish reasons, but there's a little verse in chapter 12, the previous verse, that I suspect most of you have read, but I wonder if you've thought through the implications. Look at verse 26. 
of chapter 12. Verse 26, chapter 12. In that chapter, Jesus explains what it means to follow him. And in verse 26, he says, service is part of following him. And here's how he put it. It says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. And if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Let's just break that down. Number one, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. Chapter 13, verse 1, he said his hour had come. He was going to the cross. So if you want to serve him, that's where you're going, to the cross. And the cross means sacrifice. It can mean pain, betrayal, being misunderstood, even being criticized. And if we overlay those three criteria that often dictate our decisions will I be satisfied will I be comfortable and will it be convenient the cross answers those questions it says no no and no it will not be satisfying always it will not always be comfortable it will not always be convenient none of those are criteria for following him let alone entering the kingdom of heaven number two he said where I am there my servant will be also. Jesus went to hard places. He went to places where he knew he would be rejected and criticized. He knew he would go to places where there would be difficult situations, where the Pharisees would try to take him down. But number three, Jesus said the Father will honor him. That's honor to you from Jesus Christ the King. I cannot wrap my mind around that. Our Lord and our Master honoring us, we're supposed to honor Him. So I read, I don't know how many commentaries on that verse, not one, not one could flesh it out, and I don't blame them because I can't either. How, what's this going to look like? It ultimately doesn't matter because if it's God conceived, it's going to be God achieved. But if he's going to honor us because we live to bless and serve, then that kind of a life is certainly well-pleasing to him. So number one, is he well-pleased? Number two, is the work well done? Look at chapter 13, verse 1. Is the work well done? His hour had come that he would depart out of this world to the Father, and then look at this. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He blessed and served those slow to learn disciples from day one all the way to the end. Work well done. His atonement on the cross for us. Work well done. His resurrection from the dead. Work well done. So we want our service for Jesus to be well done. We want to have, and I've used this term for years, but we want to have a relaxed excellence in this church that means we give our best but we're not going to be upset with ourselves or others if we make a mistake no one in this building makes more mistakes than I do and if you don't believe me I'll begin to tell you some dates about uh, when things are going to happen and if yeah some, if you've been around West Haven for a while you know I kind of tend to get dates messed up but we do want to create and perpetuate a culture where we do our best because Jesus is worth it. Someone recently told me about a wake-up call that occurred in an in a organization. Now, 
I'm going to try to demonstrate this the way I understand the story. During the course of the event, which I think was two days, people saw the cup. It was a conference of some sort. People saw the cup. They must have walked around the cup. They undoubtedly had conversations by the cup. But no one stopped to pick the cup up and throw it away. And they realized their organization at that time lacked a culture of excellence. But we have to define terms. What is excellence? Now, I thought about this for a while, and I came up with my own definition. It may stink, but this is what I came up with. Excellence is the compilation of small things well done over time. The compilation of small things well done over time. That kind of repetition creates culture. But it's not just repetition that creates culture. So does expectation. We should expect relaxed excellence out of ourselves because Jesus is worth it. Now, I don't want to insinuate that this place should look like a secular workplace. This is a Jesus-celebrating worship place. But we want to bless and serve with such a relaxed excellence that our culture is well-suited to reach and disciple more people in 2024 and beyond. And all of this sounds good, but ultimately we have to depend on, depend on the Holy Spirit of God. Excellence may be the compilation of small things well done over time. It reflects what we think of Jesus, but only Jesus can bring the increase. Only he can change lives. Now, you have done so well in blessing and serving this community with relaxed excellence. Nathan, myself, Kirk, Jennifer, we are over-the-top grateful in faithfulness for the way you bless and serve others. You've You've not missed a beat in giving, so we're continuing to be able to fund various missions. You may forget about this, but you helped resuscitate Linwood Baptist Church, a church that was down to three people and is now thriving. You helped start House of God Community Church in the Northland, which is now self-sustaining. You helped start a Hispanic church in the Northland, which is now self-sustaining. Your excellent service at the community carnival puts West Haven on the radar screen of this community and people have become part of us because of that. The donut distribution is a machine. The longer it goes on, the more traction we get out of it. And I can't name everything that we do, but please know we're aware of what you do and we are grateful for it. And while all of this is a good foundation the heartbeat of a church is her passion for missions and evangelism. Our world has never been darker in my lifetime. But the mandate from Jesus to make disciples and baptize them was spoken into a dark world. So we've had a mission statement in this church from the time I've been here. We exist to see people saved lives changed, and Jesus glorified. That's our mission statement. But the truth is, the church doesn't have a mission. The mission has churches. That's the way God designed it. Churches do not have a mission. The mission has churches. 
the local church, us and local churches all across this globe is God's only plan to reach this world. There is no other plan. That's why it's so important to be a saved, participating, active member of a local church. Now, we're thankful that God has blessed us with some growth this year. We're very grateful to see what he's done. And I pray that our numbers continue to increase. I've always thought this church had vast, unreached potential. We don't live and die by numbers for sure, but numbers represent souls, so they do have importance. And while there's been some nice growth, two things happen when there's any kind of growth. Growth creates problems. So the building is being used extensively, and we are thankful that there is a cleaning team that is doing a great job. Thank you to those who are on it. We need more people on it. We could really use that, and there's information in our bulletin if you'd like to join that. We've added young families with little kids, and we need more help in the nursery. We talk about that often. I want to encourage every able-bodied person from young parents to empty nesters to bless and serve there. It's one of the easiest ways to do it. But growth not only creates problems, more importantly, growth creates potential. It adds momentum to our ability to make disciples and baptize them. So here are some things we want to do in 2024 and beyond. Number one, Jennifer Belcher is doing an amazing job as our kids director. We couldn't be more thrilled. We and she would like to increase her position um, to about 25 to 30 hours a week. Her current job description is 10 to 15 hours a week. <laughs> she is exceedingly exceeding that right now, I can tell you that. But what she does is mostly maintenance. We want her to be able to focus on some growth. Number two goes right along with number one. And I talked about this two weeks ago. We want to remodel our kids' area. And I want to give a fuller explanation of why that's important. It is so important, especially right now, that we evangelize children. The world is capturing children when they're, I mean, some of you parents could say better than me, but six, seven, eight years old? I mean, it's an all-out assault on children. And I, I read some things last night that I, I don't even know if I want to share, just about how pornography has affected this whole world. The, the, what I read actually came from Australia, but it talked about, how terrible it is and how kids that age are being exposed to that kind of wickedness. We have to get to their hearts first. So when we talk about remodeling the children's area, I know this from experience. Some of the questions that will come up will say, well, now, we, if we're going to remodel the children's area, can we also do this? And can we do that? And the answer is sure. You give enough money, man, we'll build a golf course out here. <laughs> and I don't golf, but... Spending money on our own comfort is the curse. It's a curse of the American church. I think there's going to be regret in some churches at the end of the age over that. We already have the life of Jesus. 
We already experienced the love of Jesus. The lost world does not. So our focus always has to stay outward. It's about getting Jesus out there. Increasing Jennifer's hours, remodeling a children's wing is outward. It's external. It's outreach. And here's why. And I said this two weeks ago. The world is kid-centric. The, the America is anyway. And you can say it shouldn't be that way. We have to deal with reality. So our kids' area needs to be modern and roomy and inviting. It's in-house evangelism. And it tells young parents that we love their kids, that we want a good, modern environment for our kids to learn about Jesus in. And it commutes the same thing to a sadly growing segment of our population, grandparents who are raising grandkids, and especially grandparents who are bringing their grandkids to church. Now, it's not a matter, it's not a matter of if we build it, they will come. But I'm going to be really transparent with this. I had, I, I had not been, I hadn't even looked at the children's area for probably three months. It just not, wasn't part of my routine. One day I walked downstairs and thought, wait a minute, let me just look down here. If it was my first time here and I was bringing my grandkids here, I'd be a little iffy about the church. It's like, I'm going to quote Kirk Baggett. He said, it looks like a prison. And he worked in a prison. He knows. Most people are saved when they're kids. Most kids, most people are baptized when they're kids. Most people, their spiritual formation occurs when they're kids. So to be about evangelism, we have to be about kids. And we hope to have some more information about cost about that in the not-too-distant future. We're trying to do a lot of things in-house to, to avoid spending any money. I read a wonderful story about 10 days ago. It was from a pastor. He said he was visiting his dying elderly faithful, one of the dying elderly faithful women in his church is what I should say. And by her bedside, he took her hand and said, let me pray for her. And she feebly said back, don't pray for me. Pray for our kids. This just happened, by the way, according to the story. So he held her hand, and he prayed with her, and he prayed for her, and he prayed for kids, and he said she died before he finished praying. That's a great way to step out of the glory. That leads me to a third thing. We need to pray, folks. We have a monthly prayer meeting on Sundays at 5. Our nation is in moral collapse. Our world is at war. We all have burdens and we all have lost friends and family. Let's feel these burdens and gather to pray. Because God honors prayer. Charles Spurgeon called corporate prayer the boiler room that provided power to his church, and that's true. We need to pray for our kids. We need to pray about lostness. We need to pray for our nation. And we need to pray in great hope because nothing is beyond the reach of Almighty God. Next, we want to expand our commitment to missions. June 1 through 8, 2024, we're going to Santa Catarina. Let me try that again. Again, got to put my Spanish-speaking hat on. I don't speak Spanish, folks. 
Santa Catarina Huquila in Oaxaca, Mexico. Now, this is the town. I'm going to try and do this. We'll see if this works. Oh, whoops, okay, all right, there, perfect. There's the town. We'll have an eyeglass clinic there and a medical component if medically qualified people go. Santa Catarina Huquila is a town of about 18,000 people in the mountains of southern Mexico. We'll be working through the only evangelical church in town. This town has one Catholic church, but it is Catholic in name only. The Spanish conquistadors came in with their weapons and also carrying crosses. And they said to the Aztecs, convert to Catholicism or die. So they said, yes, we believe that Mexican Catholicism to this day retains much of Aztec paganism. I looked up a secular source. It said 45% of Mexican Catholics believe in the evil eye, 45% believe in reincarnation, 39% believe in magic, sorcery, and witchcraft, 31% believe they can communicate with the spirits. Now, this is called syncretism, S, yes, S-Y-N-C-R-E-T-I-S-M. Syncretism can take parts of Christianity, parts of other religion, parts of paganism, parts of secularism, parts of your own personal opinion, and put it together, and it's a personal religion. There are millions of Americans who worship a syncretistic god, a god of their own imagination. In Santa Canarita Huquila, the centerpiece of worship in the Catholic Church is the Virgin of Huquila. There was a fire in 1633, and supposedly the statue of the Virgin of Aquila was the only thing left, so now that statue is venerated and worshipped. Here's the inside of that church. Excuse me? Oh, sorry. There we go. Now, this is going to be really hard to see. It's not... It, I know it's not big enough for most of you to see, so I'm going to try and point this out. In the middle of this church, here's Jesus on the cross as Catholics portray him. To the right is Joseph holding baby Jesus. If you look to the far left, you see the Virgin Mary. But in the middle is a statue, the statue of the Virgin of Huquila. That's what they worship. This idol is even a significant part of their economy. There are shops that sell replicas. By the way, here's a closer, closer view of it. Maybe. There we go. That's a closer view of that statue. That idol is a significant part of their economy. There are shops that sell replicas, replicas, excuse me, this idol. There's one. I guess you can take it home and worship it as far as I know, but it's for sale. I mean, you might check Amazon. You might be able to get it. Who knows? That was a joke. <laughs> but, um, you can also buy small versions. There are shops that sell small versions of Aquila and related items. I don't know what they are, but that shop is supposedly very close to the church. 70,000 People a year make the trek to this mountain town to worship this idol and this church. They often promise to visit a certain number of times in the next few years, and in return for their visit, they ask for a miracle, that a sickness be cured, that a child be well, that a dying relative be brought to life again, and they also ask for prosperity. When they come, 
They spend money in this town. They, they buy some of these statues. So preaching against the version of Aquila could affect the town's income. That is the exact scenario that happened in Acts chapter 19. Paul went to Ephesus preaching Jesus, but the Ephesians made money selling statues of the goddess Diana, also known as Artemis. When Paul came, the statue makers were upset about the potential for financial loss. So in great anger, they went to the public square and chanted, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And a riot started. Now because so much of the Catholic Church in Mexico is syncretistic, that Larry Mary, who leads Vision 316, said in many of the clinics, no matter where they are, that the local Catholic Church will tell people God will curse them if they get a pair of glasses. They might even die. <clears throat> now this is an incredible opportunity to bring the gospel to what is in essence an unreached people group. God has opened that door for this church. And it's unlikely that anything negative will happen, but if there is a hint of trouble when our team is there, the group will immediately leave. And because of this, Larry doesn't want anyone on this trip under the age of 18, 21, or so on. Now, as we've known this year, as we've experienced through the mission trip that we just took, Vision 316 is an extraordinary ministry. It meets the needs of people, and it gives them the gospel. However, Larry is 72 years old, and he wants to duplicate himself to perpetuate the ministry. He identified Pastor Nathan as someone with leadership qualities when he met him. So we've had some talks, and Nathan is going to lead our group in 2024 with Larry looking over his shoulder and assuming that goes well. Nathan is going to lead other groups to Mexico in 2025 and beyond. Amen. Now, what does that look like for us and for Nathan's work here? He's moving to Mexico next week. Just kidding. <laughs> Jennifer's saying, not with me. He's going by himself. Y'all really believe he was moving to Mexico? What does it mean? What does it mean for us? I have no idea. Neither does Nathan. Welcome to the wonderful way of leading us that God chooses. But God has brought us to this wide open door. We didn't do this. So to not walk through this door would be a lack of faith and foolishness. And we're going to joyously follow Jesus by taking this step of faith. Nathan's really the one taking the step of faith. But we're going to joyously do this and see what Jesus does next. Who knows? Now, my health precludes me from going, which I don't even want to talk about. My own words are ringing in my ears. I've said from this pulpit, if there are circumstances in your life that put you in a situation where you cannot make any change, you have to assume that that is God's will. So I get a consolation prize. Next December, I, can be on, I will be on the Vision 316 Board of Directors. I guess that means I can fire Nathan if I want to. I don't know. <laughs> I guess that's my purpose. Now I'm on the Good Shepherd uh, Thrift Store Board of Directors. I'm on the Kansas City, Kansas Baptist Association Board of Directors. I've got to be good for something. By the way, if you go to Mexico next summer, you'll meet a man that's instrumental in their church. 
His name is, of all things, his name is Luis Mendoza, not to be confused with my longtime friend Luis Mendoza. And I assume that woman is his wife, I don't know. But Luis used to be part of a group that worshipped Satan and death. When they met, they would ask Satan to target certain people. They would offer blood sacrifices to Satan. He said he was possessed by seven demons and can describe each one of them. Larry has heard his testimony. He said it's credible. You'll hear it firsthand if you go there next year. Mexico is a dark place filled with syncretistic pagan religion. So is Leavenworth County. It's no different. Different idols, same devil, same lostness, same veil that's over the eyes of people. We need you. Look at me. We need every one of you, no matter who you are, we need every one of you to reach Leavenworth County. We need every one of you to help us be good stewards of this building, to serve and to bless children, to pray regularly, to give gladly. We need you. And we don't know what a lot of this will look like. To a certain extent, a church should always experience semi-controlled chaos. That's just, that's the way it is. And that's because we're trying to make disciples and baptize them. And it's not always a straight line. There's a lot of mess that gets in, uh, there's a lot of mess that gets made in the process. So I'm so thankful for you because the first two questions, the answer is yes. Is the Lord well pleased? Is the work well done? Number three, is the word well obeyed? Look at verse 14 in John chapter 13. Jesus said, if I then, the Lord and teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash another's feet. And again, verse 17, and this is the key, if you know these things, you are blessed. You are happy if you do them. Everything we're talking about requires us to obey God's word. So our mission statement, we exist to see people saved, lives changed, and Jesus glorified. That's your mission statement too. Everyone wants to feel significant. Everyone wants to feel like they make a difference. We don't, when it's my time to depart, I, I think I know what I'm going to say. It's something like this. I may not have been much. In fact, I know I wasn't, but I did my best. So today may be the day for you to make a commitment to bless and to serve. To believe what verse 17 says. Blessed are you if you do these things. I know we're going a little long today, but I'm about to land this plane. In the 1970s, Mexicans in the rural area of the state of Sonoma played baseball. They were so impoverished, they didn't have the right equipment or anything. A pitcher there was accidentally discovered by a Major League Baseball scout. He went down there to look at a possible shortstop, and he noticed this pitcher who could throw BBs. His family was very poor. They don't even know his date of birth but he could throw a baseball. 
So this scout offered him a great deal of money to come to America. He became the first major league baseball player to make a million dollars. His name was Fernando Valenzuela, who took major league baseball by storm all the way back in 1980 to something called Fernando Mania. If you've never heard of it, it's an interesting story. But imagine you're a 17-year-old kid in poverty, and you get the offer to come to America and make an amazing amount of money. How long would it take you to make that decision? Jesus is calling you to something far greater. A grand, glorious, eternal mission with everlasting rewards. He's calling us to leave this temporal sandbox and our carefully constructed sandcastles to bless and serve, to bless and serve our children, to bless and serve each other, and to bless and serve this lost world in the name of Jesus. Blessed are you, blessed are you if you do these things. And maybe you've heard all this this morning and you realize, you suddenly have this understanding that your belief system is syncretistic it's really a mixture of your own beliefs but you don't really worship the jesus of the bible the god of the bible created you to be with him but our sins separate us from him and sins cannot be removed by good works they can only be removed by the blood of jesus so jesus died on the cross to take God's punishment for your sin. Then he rose again, demonstrating his power over sin and death. Everyone who trusts in the Jesus of the Bible will have eternal life. Life with Jesus doesn't start then. Life with Jesus starts now, and it lasts forever. So if the Holy Spirit is convicting you this morning, any of you, if you know you're not saved, if you know you're worshiping a God of your own making, maybe you're watching online, and the Holy Spirit has revealed that to you, then what you want to do is simply this. Believe on him today. It's not complicated. Put your faith and trust solely in him for eternal life. And if you do that, take that card in the seat back in front of you or complete that QR code and let us know. So first of all, we can rejoice with you. But second, we can help you get started in the Christian life. Nothing is more important than to know that your sins are forgiven and that you have eternal life. Let me pray. Father.